Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I remember we all received in school a little china cup and saucer with the royal crest on the cup and a little Union Jack flag. So it wasn't the best thing to give a five-year-old a china cup because it never made it home in one piece. But I I remember that uh, so clearly. We all in our classroom, all sitting in our little rows of desks, uh, we received uh, the notification from the school, from the headmaster and from the teachers about uh, the new monarch. And uh, 70 plus years later, here we are. And... uh, talking about Queen Elizabeth and the funeral on Monday and joining me to start the program is my colleague at Chorus Radio, Ben O'Hara. Ben is in London. He's, of course, the host of A Little More Conversation on Chorus Radio nationally and was the Global News Bureau Chief in London. Ben, thank you uh, so much for joining us. It's evening time in London. What is the mood in London tonight? It's interesting. You know, when I first, um, when I got here, I thought it would be somber. And, and it is somber to some point. But in the last week, I mean, I think there was tremendous shock at her passing. It was sudden, despite the fact that she was 96. Um, but what I've noticed here is that a lot of people have been talking about, you know, they've been talking about her in a way that reminds one more of celebrating one's life, celebrating one's reign. Uh, People are not in a good mood, but people are in a very generous mood. It's been a very, despite the sheer masses of people that are here and the amount of crowds, crowd control that is going on, the long lines to see her lying in state, there's this overall sense of kindness in the air. And, and that's, you know, that's not always the way it is in London. Um, but I think her passing has, has touched a lot of people in different ways. Uh, you know, as you spoke of as being a five-year-old in, in here at the time, I mean, her legacy is that her she's woven herself into a lot of family histories in this country and in other countries and what people most wanted to talk about i waited in that queue for five hours the other night people want to share their memories of her and a lot of people have come to pay their respects not just to pay their respects to her and the queen and the monarchy but also as as a representative of, of something about their own families in many ways she was a tie for a lot of families here to a different era there, you know, a grandmother who loved the queen, a mom who had been, you know, at the coronation, for instance. And a lot of the stories I've been hearing are those that because she was here and she was so present for so long, she's ended up being, you know, woven into these family histories as well. So the mood has been, it is somber. Certainly people leaving, you know, Westminster Hall where she's lying in state have been very emotional about just the silence and, and the awesomeness of it all, the magnitude of it all. But elsewhere, people are really wanting just to share stories about what she meant, um, you know, and, and, and how they've been tied into their own family histories and their own senses of loss and so on. So the mood is somber, but in the same way, it, it's more of a celebration of her life uh, this week, I found. You know, it's interesting uh, you say that. My uh, my cousin, Diane, uh, her, her dad, my uncle, was a member of the Grenadier Guards. And uh, after the coronation, they had the opportunity to uh, mingle somewhat, and the queen came out. And my cousin was just uh, four or five years of age at the time. And she said the queen was wearing one of the hats that uh, my little, my cousin, little girl at the time really liked. And there were grapes around the brim of the hat. And she asked the queen, may I have one of those grapes? 
And the queen went over and tousled her hair and said, they're not real, my dear. <laughs> and my cousin Diane said, to this day, that is one of her strongest memories. It's, it's, she was an amazing, amazing woman. She touched so many people. She did. And, and, and there, was a, there was a way about her. Some of the stories that I've heard people tell me over, over this week, um, the governor general, the former governor general, David Johnson, is here. And he famously got into trouble back in 2017 when he lightly touched her elbow to try to help her down remember, a flight of yes. red carpeted stairs. You, you must remember that. Yes. So I was asking him about that today, and he said that the next day, or the day after, he got a letter from the Queen's private secretary saying, I'm happy to know that chivalry isn't dead, or something to that effect. That's, That's the kind of person she was. You know, she would reach out, knowing that he was in trouble, that he would, he would re- she would reach out or have someone reach out to him and say, it's okay. Um, you know, or the story that we heard from Carolyn, Carolyn uh, Clark, uh, Dr. Catherine Clark, uh, this week about her being, at, you know, why aren't you in school? I can't leave till you leave. I'm bored. And she said, well, let's leave together. You know, there was... There are so many of those stories, and the, the military connection, as you just mentioned, has been, I can't tell you how many former military members I've met in that line waiting to pay tribute. Um, you know, I, there must have been, I wouldn't say a huge number, but 10-15% of it must have been former you know, veterans, uh, UK military veterans who were waiting in that line to pay tribute, and they were there out of duty. This wasn't just about personal this was duty and it was amazing to hear that her connection to the military was so profound here and at home too obviously um that really stood out to me as well this week and you know back you know has the story of your, of your cousin would attest to yeah uh, ben how would the sense of loss over no longer having queen elizabeth as head of state compare with the sense of anticipation for the reign of king charles well, it's interesting. I mean, it's been talked about somewhat. I mean, I think everyone's dealt with that conversation. What kind of king will Charles be? We've already seen this week. I mean, he and his son, Prince William, uh, the new Prince of Wales, were out today greeting people in that long line. Uh, we saw, you know, the, we saw William and Kate, as well as um, Meghan and Harry, out greeting people in, uh, in Windsor earlier this week. And you get the feeling that there's going to be a change going forward with the monarchy, the way they present themselves to the public. It will be a more accessible, smaller and more accessible group. They will greet, meet and greet people. Um, William spoke of, compared walking behind his grandmother's coffin this week to walking behind his mother's coffin 25 years ago this month to someone in the crowd and talked about the difficulty of it. So you get the sense that this will not be um, the same tone, for instance, and there's obviously no criticism of the Queen. She was from a different time. Um, but, you know, I think it's understood that Charles will not be able to fill those shoes. Uh, yeah. He can't hope to. So he'll have to do it differently. And I think we're seeing that already. As for what happens afterwards, I mean, he faces some serious problems. Obviously, the issue of Andrew, uh, Prince Andrew, there's Harry's memoir coming out this year. The country itself is politically divided. You know, the economy is not doing great. Uh, you know, it's going to be a tough winter. There are lots of challenges ahead. But for the time being, I think everyone's allowing him time to mourn and also allowing him time to put his own stamp on this. And so far, the reception seems to have been pretty positive. So one more question for you. Uh, these are different times we live in. You just pointed out the political reality, the economic reality that the UK is facing, that we're all facing to a greater or lesser degree. But there's also the talk about the level of security that exists in London over the next, uh, well, now, and over the next number of days. Yeah. Is there a sense of, of security, or are they doing a great job of just hiding it all? 
Well, you know, I, I was here for the Olympics. I was here for the Diamond Jubilee. And one of the things that always struck me is that if you stop to look for it, you'll see it everywhere. There is security everywhere. If you don't stop to look for it, you won't notice it, at least not in the way you might think. What has changed in the last few days is that they've really started to lock down the area around Buckingham Palace and Westminster. It's still open to move around, but it's restricted, and you could tell they could close it off very quickly. So I gather what they're going to do is create sort of a ring of steel around the the area where where Westminster Abbey is, where the palace is, where everything is taking place over the next few days, especially on Monday. And you will not be able to get into that area other than in a very controlled manner. There'll be very little vehicle or traffic, none, really. Um, So, you know, they will lock this area down. The rest of London, by the way, as you well know, London's a massive city. If you go two kilometers north of Buckingham Palace, it's life is normal for the most part. But this area down around Westminster, around Buckingham Palace, Green Park, that's going to be completely shut down. And behind the scenes, I talked to a security expert yesterday. Uh, they were talking about, you know, you see 10%, it's like the iceberg, right? You see 10%, 90% going on behind the scenes. Obviously, they're exchanging information and threat assessments for security agencies around the world, including CSIS and the CIA. Um, you know, they're, they're assessing th- threats in the country. Um, you know, there's cameras all over London. They're looking for things that are out of place. But he pointed out something interesting. They don't have much time to prepare for 100 state visits all at once at a huge royal event, but nor does anyone else. So they feel if there's any bad actors out there, they don't have time to plan either, and that's to their advantage. Tonight begins the journey to replace an old government that costs you more and delivers you less with a new government that puts you first, your paycheck, your retirement, your home, your country. And, of course, the voice of uh, Pierre Polyev, after he won the leadership, of the Conservative Party of Canada. And uh, now the wheels are turning, and uh, the please be scared, you must be scared, of Pierre Polyev messaging is beginning, as you're hearing, if you pay attention. Um, and it's sort of the same thing that they did to Stephen Harper. The tanks, remember that uh, that television commercial the CBC ran over and over about the tanks and the streets and all that stuff? The, the situation is this. Pierre Polyev had to satisfy the members of the Conservative Party that he is the appropriate person to lead the party. That was objective number one, which he achieved. The next objective that he has is to persuade Canadians, the people of Canada, that he's the right person to be the Prime Minister of Canada. That is his job. That is what he's going to try to do. You decide for yourself who you think the Prime Minister of Canada should be. The current Prime Minister has said he's going to run again. And uh, Mr. Polyev obviously is running, and Mr. Singh is starting to make noise about, well, if you don't satisfy us, if you're the Liberals, we may change our deal with you. Well, I think Mr. Singh is starting to realize that that deal was just a bad idea. Poor idea. Okay, let's talk to Senator Denise Batters. Senator Batters was a early supporter of Pierre Polyev, and we know the senator had uh, a challenging situation with the former leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole. And uh, when the senator challenged Mr. O'Toole's leadership, saying, man, we need an early review, which I agreed with, he expelled her from the caucus. What was interesting is that the Conservative Senate caucus did not expel the senator. Senator Batters, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm very well. Thanks so much for having me on today. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, it's... uh, it's a great day to be Canadians, a great day to be Conservative Party Canada 
a member. So what should Canadians know and understand about Pierre Polyev as leader of the Conservative Party? And why did you support him as early as you did? Well, I have known Pierre for quite some time. Um, he first got elected in 2004, the same year as my husband did. So what I certainly knew about Pierre, I've seen him um, really progress as a politician all of these years. And uh, he's always proven to be a fighter, someone who stands up for as a champion of working Canadians. And right now, it's a very challenging situation. We have 40-year high inflation. We have rising taxes. Um exacerbated by this terrible Trudeau government. We have stagnating wages and skyrocketing house prices, and it's a perfect time for someone who is actually a champion of working Canadians, not just talks about it, um, to try to uh, help Canadians. And I knew that Pierre, having known him for so long, um, I knew that he is a man that does what he says he will do. And uh, unlike um, the situation that we previously had, where we had a leader who flip-flopped and... uh, on, on very key issues, I knew that Pierre is someone who would never do that. So one of the questions that's going to be raised is, of course, about unity within the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. Charest came in second, 16% of the vote. He's now departed. I asked him early in the leadership campaign, if you don't win, will you leave? He chose not to answer that question. I knew what, I knew what the answer was. I think we all did. So is are you confident that under the leadership of Pierre Polyev, the party will be unified? Yes. The Conservative Party of Canada right now is more united today than at any point since leadership of Stephen Harper. And I think that that's proven by the fact that not only did Pierre win an overwhelming majority last weekend with 71% of the vote in this leadership race, he also won clear majorities of the vote in every single province, including Quebec, which he won with over 60%. And this was against former Liberal Premier of Quebec um, who ran against him. And Pierre won 330 out of 338 ridings. He also received endorsements from the majority of our Conservative caucus. And all of this is important to remember that this is with a much larger Conservative membership than has ever existed before. We now have 680,000 Conservative Party of Canada members, more than double the previous record membership high. And 417,000 Conservative members voted in this leadership race. So with all those numbers, excellent way to take a step forward to the very important next step, which is actually um, trying to become government in this country, taking down this terrible, tired, awful Trudeau government and uh, and helping Canadians to make... Senator, what, what do you make of the fact that uh, news stories, headline news stories are about Quebec um, conservative members who don't believe in Pierre Polyev? Uh, have left the party, uh, one sitting as an independent. The party has apologized for um, text messages that were sent um, challenging, uh, let me be kind, challenging one of the members. What do you make of all that? Well, um, Mr. Reyes, um, who I've sat in caucus with for quite some time, he's made his decision. Um, the rest of the Quebec caucus has actually loudly and enthusiastically united around Mr. Polyev. I mean, leadership races can be long and difficult, as this one was, and some find it a bit more difficult to move on. That's fine, but it's time to shift focus now to fighting just inflation and liberal mismanagement. And I want to also point out that I come from the PC side of the equation prior to the merger of the parties, and I find no conflict with my principles with Mr. Polyev as leader. And I also know that in the last leadership race, I supported the former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, Peter McKay, Mr. Did not. 
Mm. What do you make? Uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, put it this way. Do you think that media, national media in this country are fair to Mr. Paulier? Well, some are and some aren't. I mean, I'm certainly not going to group all of them together. Um, and you know what? That's why I think it, we've made it a big priority to speak directly to Canadians as much as possible. Um, to you know, Pierre has been excellent about doing videos that Canadians can actually understand. I was just speaking to um, a woman around my age in my province yesterday who doesn't really follow politics all that much, but she had seen the video that Pierre just did um, quite recently, um, pretending that he was having breakfast with Justin Trudeau and telling him about all the significant problems of inflation and how much everything in that breakfast was costing now as compared to previously, and things that Justin Trudeau really needs to... Um, realize about this country. And that's the kind of thing that she really appreciated because she was hearing this um, from, you know, from someone that she may not have normally heard this in the mainstream news, but she saw it on a, on a video that he did. And there's no one better at talking directly to Canadians and telling them about these sometimes complicated issues, boiling it right down. That's an important thing for Canadians that have very little time in their daily lives to be, you know, dissecting the daily news, but they want to hear from people who are actually going to make their life better and understand the issues that they're struggling with. I'm going to be speaking with Chad Bowie right after I speak with you. He wrote an op-ed in the National Post this week. It's all about words, and Pierre Polyev continues to choose the right ones. We're going to talk to him about that. I have time for one more question for you. I had a lot more questions, but I have time for one more. This is an increasingly divided country. And uh, one divide is very clear, the East-West divide. You're from Western Canada, Saskatchewan. How do you see, Mr. Polyev, addressing the issue of division within Canada, but even beyond East-West? How will he be able to unify the Canadian people and the Canadian spirit? What's he got? Well, I think what he's excellent at is he focuses on the topics that unite Canadians, like economic prosperity, sound fiscal management, and personal freedoms. Things like inflation, the cost of it, living crisis, and out-of-control spending, those matter regardless of what language a Canadian speaks or which part of the country they live in. And also, Pierre will end the top-down, Ottawa-knows-best approach that has defined these Trudeau years on so many issues, like the federal carbon tax. As well, Pierre, he has been an MP in suburban Ottawa for many years now, um, but he also comes from the West. He comes from Calgary, actually, and his parents originally come from Saskatchewan. So he certainly understands many things about this um, this great, vast country that we have, and he understands those issues. But those particular issues are ones that unite us from coast to coast, and we know that we need a better government to deal with them and to actually help Canadians, not just, uh, you know, um, Minister Jolie, Trudeau's Foreign Affairs Minister this week said, Canadians value their government. Well, what I think we need, and I know what Pierre thinks we need, is that the government values Canadians. Offer our support and our, our prayers and thoughts to, to their family and to make sure they, they know that they, they have everyone in Ontario support. And I don't think there's a person in Ontario that, that's not grieving for for what happened to uh, Constable Hong. As the uh, Premier of Ontario, Dem Ford, speaking after the uh, the ambush murder of 22-year Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong earlier in the week. Just a horrific, horrific situation. The individual who uh, killed Constable Hong went on to kill a, 
a body shop owner in Milton, Ontario, where he worked. He also severely wounded another staffer at that particular location who is not expected to survive and uh, severely wounded someone else in a carjacking prior to that. But Constable Hong, 22 years on uh, the Toronto Police Service, and we'll be speaking with uh, David Perry, former Toronto Police Homicide Unit detective, and a 20-plus year member of the Toronto Police about the situation and about Constable Hong. But I'm going to start by, um, and we're talking about police officers who lose their lives in the line of duty in this half hour. And uh, we're joined by the uh, brother of a Calgary Police Service Sergeant, Jason Harnett joins us, his brother Andrew, on uh, New Year's Eve 2020, was killed after being dragged by a fleeing vehicle and falling into the path of an oncoming car, this following a routine traffic stop. The driver of the fleeing car was 17 at the time, and he faces a murder trial as a potential young offender. A second occupant of the car, who Sergeant Harnett was in the process of arresting on outstanding warrants, pled guilty to manslaughter. And he will be out of prison before Sergeant Harnett's then-unborn son will reach his fourth birthday. Next Sunday, the 25th of September, the first post-COVID delayed Canadian Police and Peace Officers Memorial Service will take place in Ottawa. Sergeant Harnett will be recognized. Jason, uh, how are you? Uh, good afternoon, Roy. It's a uh, it's a real privilege to speak with you, and uh, thanks for having me on today. I'm I'm uh, doing okay. Um, you stirred up some emotions with your intro, though. Uh, obviously, yeah, and and I understand. And you and I have spoken off the air about uh, your brother. I feel like I I know your brother a little bit now through our conversations. And um, police officers, when they take on the duty and they put on the uniform, or if they're playing clothes, when they go to work each day, they never know what their day is going to turn out to be. Most of us who take our take on our jobs have a good idea of how the job's going to go during the day and how it's going to end, and we'll get home at the end of the day and spend time with our families. That's not the case with police officers. In a very generic sense, Jason, what's your feeling about that? Uh, absolutely. I, I, uh, I encourage all first responders to hug their loved ones before they go out on a shift and uh, I think some of our first responders keep a lot of things from our family so so they don't worry about uh, what they're up to but uh, it's very true I mean a lot of police officers go out there and and face God knows what every every night every shift um, Andrew certainly faced a number of um, unique situations dangerous situations on a regular basis he was a a police officer for 12 years with Calgary and uh, prior to that a military police officer in Edmonton so uh, he faced a lot of um, situations and uh, uh, he knew his job um, had risks um, and he took those risks and uh, um, he did a, he did a great job and really um, honored our family for sure yeah uh, the National Police Memorial in Ottawa next weekend, right. and uh, and and uh, it will acknowledge the fallen officers across Canada. And your brother's going to be mentioned, and uh, and brought into the uh, into the service. Um, let's talk about that and share that with us, please. What how, what does that mean, and how important is that to your family? Well, I think it's very important to our family and uh, all the families that have lost loved ones over the years. Um, this is important because it's returning for the first time in two years. Um, the police memorial has been on hiatus because of COVID. 
Um, I may add that this is on the same weekend that the Alberta Police and Peace Officer Memorial is being held, and uh, we did attend that last year. Um, there was a scaled-down version of that, and uh, we're looking forward to being in Ottawa and at Parliament for this occasion to, to really honour Andrew and, and all of the other police officers and peace officers who, like I said, go into God knows what every day and uh, um, unfortunately have faced the ultimate sacrifice in, in Andrew's case and, and uh, as of recent in, in Toronto area as well. Yeah. Uh, we cannot and, and we will not speculate as to how the trial of the accused in your brother Andrew's death will proceed or what a verdict may be. We cannot do that by law. And uh, the fundamentals of Canadian justice is everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But what do you know about where things are as far as the trial is concerned? Well, I mean, our family has been back and forth to Alberta. As you know, Roy, we're in Ontario, and uh, we've been making several trips. Uh, there were two murder cases. The, the one has wrapped up, as you mentioned, uh, with uh, that individual fleeing to manslaughter. Um, the the second trial got underway in January of this year. Um, the, the Crown presented their case, uh, but it was, it was quickly recessed uh, for the defence to have a psychological evaluation of their client and uh, we're returning back to court um, right after the National Police Memorial. It's, it's, it's uh, kind of ironic. Uh, one moment we're celebrating the life and, and then we're, we're back in the courtroom in, in Calgary um, a day after that. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of pressure on a family. And uh, I, I would say, you know, the one silver lining with uh, Constable Hong's family is that they won't have to go through the courts and, and face all of that and relive every moment, um, uh, which we have. Yeah, it's it's very, very difficult for families to go through the entire court process and uh, and see what's going on and hear what's going on. So much is said in the courtroom, which is difficult for families to, to, to live with. Your family feels great gratitude to your hometown of Hagersville, Ontario, also to Strathmore, Calgary, and Alberta, and the policing and military communities in Edmonton. Please talk to us about that. Oh, I, I, I think we certainly felt the blue wave, and we felt... Um, support from people across this country, uh, continued to feel that support. We met a lot of wonderful people. Um, I know one thing that my mom has talked about is, is, is keeping and carrying on that tradition of putting on a blue light and, and blue ribbon for, for those first responders, uh, especially on New Year's Eve in honor of Andrew. And, and uh, I would say that it's, it's quite appropriate for people in, in the Toronto and York area to do the same right now. Um, uh, the families, the families notice it. They appreciate it, and uh, uh, I guarantee um, it will help them through a very difficult time. Jason, can you tell us uh, something about your brother Andrew, a, a personal um, anecdote, something about about your brother that uh, that our listeners can, uh, you know, feel like we. Feel like we know him a little bit. Funny, yeah. I mean, he was a big Beatles fan. He was a big music fan. Um, ironically, this very weekend was the last time I saw him. Um, two years ago, this weekend, uh, we did the Terry Fox run together. He was just a natural athlete. Uh, I was out practicing, and he just decided randomly to do the run and, and uh, 
could outrun anybody. Um, he, he had a great sense of humor. Uh, he loved life. He really embraced the Alberta lifestyle as well and got involved with the rodeo and the outback there. And uh, he was just a great guy. He had a huge, he had huge potential. And uh, unfortunately that was cut short. If uh, you have a message for the, the family of Constable Andrew Hong, what would you say to them? It's difficult because I, I feel our family is still um, dealing with this, but um, just just stay strong. Um, some wonderful people are going to come into your life. Um, you will get through this. And uh, there's a lot of people behind you right now. We've lost an outstanding member of the service, an outstanding individual in Andrew. Uh, we give our deepest condolences to his family, and uh, our membership's going to work through it, and uh, we will honor him appropriately in, in due course. The uh, chief of police in Toronto on uh, the death of Constable Andrew Hong and the impact on policing families across Canada. David Perry is the CEO of Investigative Solutions Network with offices across Canada. You'll find them at isninc.com, specializing in investigations, risk management, background screening, training, and security. Dave Perry is also a former Toronto homicide detective, 20 more than 20-year um, experience with the Toronto Police Service. Dave, thank you very much uh, for joining us. You knew Constable Andrew Hong. Share that with us, please. Yeah, I sure did. <clears throat> I mean, Andrew came to my platoon when I was a staff sergeant in the 42 Division, right out of the Ontario Police College. So he was a brand new recruit. And boy, did he ever make a great first impression. He was one of the few, if maybe perhaps the only police officer that all, um, called me in advance. He actually called me up one day and said, I'm joining your platoon next week. I was wondering if I could come in and introduce myself and meet you. So I was impressed just by that. And then when he walked in the door and he filled the absolute door, he's a huge man with a great big smile. And, uh, you know, I had a great, great meeting with him, great interaction. And he was such an addition to our platoon and to our police service. What a, what a great guy. So it's one of those, he's one of those guys. He, he, he left an indelible impression on me that I'll never forget. You know, the, the instant impact, Dave, and I can hear it in your voice. The instant impact on a police community and police families, the greater family as well, when an officer is murdered or otherwise loses his or her life through a criminal act while uh, performing his or her sworn duty must be just absolutely uh, gut-wrenching. What, what, what are you feeling? Anger? Well, it's, frustration? It's, it's devastating. You feel all the emotions that, that you would, you know, when you lose somebody that's close to you. and. Yeah. And strangely enough, in in uh, in policing, even if we don't personally know the officer, it still feels the same. It feels like you've lost a brother or a sister. And of course, the only thing that makes it even worse is when you actually knew the officer. And listen, this isn't about me, but I got to tell you, there there is a grieving uh, profession out there right across the country. And and certainly, the closer you get to where Andrew worked, and if you were fortunate enough to be like me and knew him, and and so on, it, it makes it even more difficult. So it, it's a really tough time. And of course, we all know it was a really tough week for, for policing in Canada to have the loss of two officers and, and the officer that we lost in York Region as well through a tragic accident. It, it's just been a really difficult week. Yes, it has been. Uh, this uh, Sean Petrie, uh, this must be 
just absolutely uh, devastating was at this Mississauga Tim Hortons for more than two hours looking for a police officer. When you when you hear that, that's really chilling, isn't it? It's chilling. It's something that we predicted would be happening here in, in Canada. And of course, if it was going to happen somewhere, it's highly likely it's going to happen in Toronto. And we've seen, you know, the execution of police officers in the United States. And, you know, we are always about, you know, perhaps 10 years behind U.S. crime patterns. And as we watched the U.S. cities being taken over by guns and gangs, and we knew it was going to happen eventually here in Toronto if we didn't steer the course. And unfortunately, we didn't steer the course. And here we are today with so much violence in our cities and where we thought we might be with a very tragic loss of a police officer that was nothing more than a targeted execution of a a fine officer. It just doesn't get any worse than this. Yeah, I'm just wondering sometimes, Dave, about the longer-term impact on the policing community, whether it motivates experienced police officers who can qualify for a pension, but are also free to decide to continue working, whether these sorts of situations and these concerns may motivate them to resign or retire. Well, I, I don't know. It could but I heard somebody else say it this way, and I, and I agree it's a good way of saying it. The, the safe zones have been breached in our communities, and it's not just Toronto, but places where we used to feel very safe to go. Tim Hortons, the community place where you could go have a cup of coffee. And even as a uniformed police officer, you could interact with your community. People would talk to you and, and say hello, and, and, and you could feel quite comfortable doing that. Well, I, I don't think any officer is ever going to feel quite that way again. Um, you know, we, we as police officers, and I still say that because I, once you're an officer, you feel like you always are, um, your head's on a swivel. You know, you're trained that way. You have experiences that most people don't have in terms of, you know, some of the worst that our society can throw at you. And, and you know, to, to get to the point where we are today where you don't feel safe anywhere, I, I think that's got to be very difficult for the, the officers of today. Yeah, if you were to um, look at the responsibility of being a police officer in 2022, and you were to compare it to the responsibility of being a police officer 20, 30 years ago, how much more difficult is it? How much more challenging is is the experience today? Tenfold. And that's, that's at a minimum. I mean, today, what officers don't have is the absolute support of the community that they used to have. Now, when I say that, I don't want anybody to, to take this the wrong way. I truly believe from the interactions that I have every day in business and, and dealing with police officers that the majority of people still support the police. But there's never been such a groundswell as we've seen in the last couple of years of this sort of anti-police sentiment, this sort of defund the police, uh, dishonoring what I would describe as one of the most honorable professions on the planet. So I don't know how officers could feel the way we used to feel. It, it was a warm feeling to go to work, even though you were dealing with very bad people doing very bad things, horrible crimes every day. You had the majority of the community stepping out and speaking very fondly of the police and supporting the police. But I, politically, I think it's the politics that are the worst part of the scenario that we're facing today, to have politicians continue to, to line up with special interest groups and say all kinds of negative things about Police officers totally criticize police officers, make huge assumptions about police officers and what their beliefs are and how they feel and, and how they act. And then to pull 
the, the, the absolute necessary tools away from police officers that they need to do their job and to keep the community safe. It's, it's quite frankly, I think it's disgusting. And that's that's the stage that we've reached today where officers feel that it's it's the politicians, the lawmakers who actually don't support what they go out and try and do every day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 